Welcome everybody to Mill City Church. We're so glad to have you here. Why don't you finish up your conversation, find your seat. We'll continue worshiping together. I'm going to pray for the message and also just take a moment to pray for some of the decisions that are being made, probably even as we speak about different conflict that we have and specifically the situation that is happening in Iran at the moment. So would you join me in praying for that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the scripture teaches us to pray for our leaders. And so we lift them up this morning. We pray for whatever decisions are being made, that you would infuse them with wisdom and that you would direct the decisions towards the peace that you want to exist in the world. Jesus, we remember that you are the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords, and so we affirm your leadership of us as a church and over the whole world, and we pray, God, that your peace will rain down on this world. And not only in this situation in Iran, but in all the other places in the world where there are conflict, that we know is not what you want, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're starting a conversation today called Hindsight 2020. Not Vision 2020. Hindsight 2020. So I want you to, as we start, imagine that it is the end of December 2020. Okay? Put yourself in, a, in an imaginary position where we're at the end of the year that we've just started and you're looking back on it. What do you hope is true about your life, about our church's life, about the world that we live in as you look back on the year? What do you hope is true about this year as you reflect on it next December? Brene Brown says that the stories that we tell ourselves, the narratives that exist in our heads and in our hearts shape dramatically the way we live our lives and the way we experience everyday life. So what stories are we telling ourselves as we think about the year 2020? Whether you're looking at it from January forward or December backwards, what story are you telling yourself about the kind of year this is going to be? Do you think that it's going to be a hard year? Do you think it's going to be an exciting year? Do you imagine that it's going to be a political year? A dangerous year? A year with opportunity? A year full of happiness? Everyone's going to be bored this year. Is that the story you're telling yourself about 2020? The story you are telling yourself about this year will dramatically shape your experience, our experience of whatever's coming towards us here. And it's really easy to forget in our lives every day in the 21st century that God is the one writing the story, not us. It's not easy, or it's not too hard to forget that God is writing a story that God has been writing for a really long time, and we're playing a role in it. It's easy to get caught up in all kinds of other narratives, many of which we are the center of. 
I am the center of. When we think that we are writing a story instead of living into God's story, we get into trouble. If we can see ourselves as participating in God's story in 2020, it will dramatically change our experience of this upcoming year. And so we want to begin the year at Mill City Church by claiming the narrative of Scripture, and specifically the New Testament, as the story through which we want to experience this next year. And we want to invite all of you into allowing the New Testament to be the story that guides our lives. And so we're going to read through the New Testament in, the, in 2020 together. We're going to have all sorts of resources, as Steph mentioned a minute ago, to help you choose a plan and get together with some other folks to do this. The New Testament isn't that long, and so it really wouldn't take you a whole year to read it. But we want it to stay in front of us so that as we're experiencing whatever is coming to us in this next year, the lens of Scripture is the primary lens through which we see our lives. Amen? So, question is, how do we let God's story shape our experience of this year? How do we let God's story shape our experience of this year? And I want to suggest that we start by looking back. Looking back, we can see God at work in ways that were hard to see in the moment. Let me say that again. Looking back, we can see God at work in ways that were hard to see in the moment, right? Hindsight is 2020. Has anybody had an experience where they looked back in their life and they say, oh, now I understand what God might have been doing in that space of my life, but I didn't get it while I was going through it. That happens, right? So as we look back and as we experience this hindsight, let's see how we can name what God has been doing and how that can help us allow the story of Scripture to shape our experience of 2020. How many of you have seen, on a lighter note, how many of you seen the new Star Wars movie? Good, I just want to tell you the ending real quick. <laughs> I went to see the movie with some friends, uh, some of whom are here today, and um, they all knew much more about the Star Wars narrative than I did, I would say. I was on the low end of knowledge as far as the Star Wars narrative went in this particular group of people. And if, if you don't know anything about Star Wars and you go to see a movie like the latest one that's come out and, and you don't even know who people like Yoda are or Obi-Wan Kenobi or Princess Leia or, or Darth Vader or other characters that have far more complicated names that I couldn't even write down in this script for today, then you don't even know why the Jedis are really important, right? And you're sitting in this movie with people and they have these swords that light up and there's all this wild stuff happening and the people around you seem super into it, right? But you have almost no idea why they're into it because you don't know the story. So some tiny little creature says something in some broken English and everyone's like, oh. And you're like, what, what, I don't, what? What did that mean? I don't get it. The same is true about the New Testament. Great parallel, right? Did you see that? Come on now. Thank you. Thank you. So as we look at the book of Matthew, we're going to start off with this long list, a genealogy, a family line that you might read through and go, I have no idea what any of these names mean. And I don't know why any of them would be important and I can't pronounce 80% of the names. 
But as you look at it, you realize that what Matthew is doing is writing the next chapter of a very long story. He's not writing a new story. He's not writing the beginning of a story. He's writing one of the sequels, episode I don't know what number. He is continuing a narrative that God has been writing for a very long time. In fact, the first two words in Greek of Matthew's gospel, which in English don't translate super clearly in, in light of what's, um, what they mean, the two first words are the same words that the, um, the, old, the oldest Greek translation of the Old Testament used for the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis in Greek is the same word that Matthew starts his gospel with in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And he's trying to signal, again, this doesn't come through that well in English. He's basically saying, Genesis, Genesis. I'm connecting this story that begins the New Testament. It's the first gospel that helps us understand who Jesus is and why that matters. By saying Genesis, genealogy, the beginning. And he's signaling to the Star Wars fans who have a clue, look, this is continuing from the one way before. Some of us who don't know that story might go, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why that's meaningful. But he's trying to help us understand, no, this is a sequel to an origin story that was written a long time ago. Some of you know that we're big fans of this website and organization called The Bible Project. And on the website that we've built for you to try to help you read the New Testament in 2020, there'll be a link to a bunch of their videos. I took a three-minute clip out of their overview of the book of Matthew so that we could watch it today because I think it really helps us understand how Matthew is continuing the story of the Old Testament. So let's watch that. The Gospel According to Matthew. It's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness accounts about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all these into this amazing, tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In this video, we're just going to cover the first half of the book. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now this design is very intentional and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. Chapters one through three, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus that highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises, that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human. He is God with us. God become human. 
So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt. He passed through the waters of baptism and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses and Jesus parallel also explains why Matthew has structured the center of the book the way that he did. These five main parts highlight Jesus as a teacher. And he's created a parallel. Jesus as a teacher parallels the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new authoritative covenant teacher who's going to fulfill the storyline of the Torah. Isn't that so cool? Matthew's not just sitting down and writing a story or chronicling what he saw or heard. He's structuring the whole book to signal to us this is the continuation and fulfillment of this story that's been going on a long time. Sometimes you hear people say, like, well, I just read the Gospels and I don't need the rest of it. Right? Well, that wouldn't make any sense to the people who were in the Gospels. Because Jesus wasn't just an abstract person who happened to jump up in the first century. He's the fulfillment and continuation of this long narrative of God's people in relationship with God and trying to live out God's mission in the world. So Matthew is writing to tell us that Jesus is this continuation and fulfillment. He references the Old Testament indirectly or directly over a hundred times in this short gospel in an effort to show that Jesus is this fulfillment. This begins, as mentioned in the video, with a genealogy, a family tree. And it's a history of the people who led up to the birth of Jesus. So I'm going to read through it, uh, and you may lose your attention span in the middle of it, and then I'll get it back. I'm going to get your attention back when I start to tell you why all these little characters are so profound for understanding the storyline that Matthew's going to unfold in the rest of this book. So here's how Matthew reads at the very beginning. This is the genealogy. That's the translation where it's basically saying Genesis, the book of Genesis, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All extremely important titles. Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And then the, the uh, lineage begins with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Selman, Selman, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know, you remember Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. We're now one-third of the way through. How are you doing? All right, keep your energy up. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother has been, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Come back to that one. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Half of these I don't know how to pronounce, but you say them with confidence. So when you're reading this later, 
you say, Pastor Mike said this with confidence, and I'm sure it's right. You say it with confidence. Or say it a different way and say it with confidence, and you're going to be fine, okay? That's just a side lesson. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So you made it from Abraham to David, and then you made it from David to the time when the Israelites were removed from their land and taken in captivity to Babylon. And now this last section is going to be the time when they came back from Babylon up to the birth of Jesus. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, don't you think? Abihud? Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thank you. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, if you read these and you don't know who any of these people are, you might feel like the Star Wars guy who really has no clue why any of the things are very important. But we have some hints in here that are really important to pay attention to. So first and foremost, Matthew begins the family tree with Abraham. Abraham is not the person that the Bible says was created at the very beginning of Genesis, right? That was Adam and Eve. And so why does he begin with Abraham? Abraham is the first person in this story because Matthew is most interested in showing how the relational covenant that God made with Abraham is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and read just a couple verses there, you get the hint. Genesis chapter 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is one of the pieces of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. So he begins with Abraham, Matthew does, to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that not only would the people of Israel be blessed, but they would become a blessing to everyone else. Jesus isn't a blessing only for the Israelites. He is a savior for the entire world, is one of the things that Matthew wants us to get as he starts out this book. When we look back from Abraham to Jesus, we see in hindsight that God worked through all of these messy, sinful people that I'm about to summarize for you to bring about God's love and God's mercy and God's justice. So let's just take a snapshot of a few of these people. I don't have time to go through them all. Let me start with Jacob after Abraham. So Jacob, some of you know, is a guy who stole his brother's birthright. Remember the story? His brother Esau was older but he went into his dad's tent when he was old and couldn't see. He put fur, some kind of animal hair, on his arms because his brother was real hairy. Went into his blind dad and made him feel his arms. Just imagine that scenario for a second. 
feel my fake hairy arms so that I can convince you that I'm the oldest and get the birthright. This is the guy who is the, the, um, the patriarch, whose later his name is changed to Israel from Jacob, and he becomes the patriarch of the whole nation. Hairy arm stealing birthright guy. He becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He has 12 sons, one of whose name is Judah. Judah is also mentioned in this. Uh, Judah is one of the, the sons who participated with his brothers in selling one of their younger brothers, Joseph, into slavery. Like, I have some kids who occasionally fight at home. None of them have sold anyone into slavery at this point. He participates in selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt, which then God uses to redeem and rescue all the rest of them by creating a space for them to survive from famine in Egypt. This is an important part of Jesus' family tree. I thought that maybe we should create a hashtag for this as we get through it that just is Jesus' family tree, which is terribly messed up as you go along. So imagine there to be a hashtag, Jesus' family tree, after each one of these stories. Another person mentioned in this crazy family tree is Rahab. Rahab is one of four women mentioned. She is not a Jewish person. She's a prostitute, according to Scripture, and a foreigner who displays amazing courage by providing a place for these spies to hide, Jewish spies to hide, when they're scouting out the land that God is sending them into. She believes they're from God, hides them, saves their lives, and ends up helping Israel to enter into the land that God wants to, uh, wants to have. And so she's in the lineage. Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, also a foreigner to Israel, who married a nice young Israelite man. He died, and she had no husband. She should have gone back to be with her her family, but she refused. She stayed with her mother-in-law, who she loved, and Boaz ended up marrying her to redeem her because she wouldn't have had a way to provide for herself economically. And out of this terrible heartbreak of losing her, her husband and not going back to her home and staying in this uncertainty, she became the great-grandmother of King David. Amazing. Then we have this reference to Uriah's wife, Uriah and Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. Matthew puts this story right in the middle here, right? He notes that Solomon's mom was Uriah's wife, doesn't even use her name. He wants to make sure and name that Uriah, the guy who David had killed so that he could steal his wife, Bathsheba, is in the lineage of Jesus, hashtag Jesus family tree. Uriah's wife is listed because she becomes the, the, the mother of one of the most famous kings in Israel's history, Solomon. There's a guy named Manasseh in here. As I'm just cruising through the readings, you might not have even noticed. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Who's Manasseh? Well, Manasseh is one of the nastiest people you've ever met in your life. He became king when he was 12, 2 Kings 20 tells us. He was king for 55 years. He was awful. He killed all kinds of people rejected God completely, taught everyone else to reject God completely, even sacrificed his own son in worship to another God until he finally died almost six decades of misleading Israel. His son became king for only two years before the rest of the people around him assassinated him. Hashtag Jesus family tree. Zerubbabel 
in this last section, in the post-exile section, played a key role. He was a healthy guy who came back and helped to get the foundation of the temple built after they had been released from captivity in Babylon and started rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. There's just a few of the highlights of this really long list of Jesus' family tree. Now, this isn't even... Um, Jesus is adopted into this family line, right? Let me finish with that. Joseph has to be told by an angel, we learned last month, that it's okay for him to marry this woman, this young teenage girl that he's engaged to, even though she's pregnant, not by him, and adopt Jesus into this crazy family tree that we just read. That's how Jesus got into this. The lineage of King David was through adoption by Joseph. Matthew starts, he could have started this book any number of different ways, right? If you're writing a sequel to a superhero story, you've got to start with some great, big, massive explosion and battle in order to keep people's attention in the movie theater. Matthew decides to start with this family line. But when you know the characters and you learn what they were up to, you're like, oh my goodness, this is the family tree from which the savior of the world came? In hindsight, we can see that God works through our messy, sinful, rebellious lives to bring about, amazingly, God's love and God's mercy and God's justice. There's two themes that I want to highlight from from these people in this lineage for you this morning. The first one is real simple. God is the author of this story. Matthew wants us to know desperately that God is the one writing this story. Here's how Matt Woodley, uh, a scholar on the book of Matthew, puts it. He says, Matthew wants us to know that three times 14 means there's a story and a storyteller. There's a plot and a plot weaver. Behind the mess and unpredictability of the human story, God is weaving another story. A story of harmony and redemption. It's so easy, as I said earlier, to forget that God is the author of the story. In your daily life, the number of pressures and things that you're trying to pay attention to, the busyness that consumes so many of our lives, it's just easy to go about everyday life forgetting that God's actually the one writing the story, isn't it? And this creates tremendous pressure on us because we believe that we have to be the authors of our own stories. That's what the 21st century is teaching us. It's our job to create for ourselves the future we want. It is our job to create for ourselves and to become the people that we want to be. It's our jobs even now to define the truth that we want to believe. This is too much for us. Has anyone noticed? We can't do this. We weren't created to do that. We were created as characters in a story, not the author of the story. God is the one writing the story for us, a story we could never create on our own. And it's our challenge and our privilege to try to live into the story that God is writing. We have got to keep that perspective this year. If it's up to us, we're in a lot of trouble. If God is still active and present, we have hope. Amen? Second theme. God's mercy in this crazy family line of Jesus. The story that God is writing is 
full of mercy. God could have given up on these people any number of times. He, God is not exclusive. God includes broken people, people from outside even, the chosen people of God, the Jewish folks. Jesus came to save these sinners. He spent all his time with people who were considered sinners, offering them forgiveness and mercy, eating with them, even when people judged him for eating with them. He wanted them to have a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a ninth chance and a hundredth chance. These sinners are people in his own family tree. Jesus lives and dies among sinners, for sinners, proclaiming God's mercy and love towards sinners to uh, offering them the love and forgiveness of God if they will only receive it. Living into God's story this next year, it's not about being perfect. It's about recognizing that God can work through you despite your imperfections, despite your sinful tendencies and your brokenness. God can bring healing and wholeness into our lives and into the world when we put our trust in Jesus and let God write the story that God wants to write. Each of the characters mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, they're broken people that God chose to use anyway. They're sinful people that God invited to trust again and to receive forgiveness and to do what God invited them to do. So how might God be inviting you to rewrite your understanding of your own past in light of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. When you look back on your own story, your own personal life, where do you see God at work? Are there moments in your life that you can distinctly point to and say, God was working there even though I didn't know it in that particular moment? Sometimes I teach people this really um, simple exercise where they look back over their life or over the life of their church or their company or their family or whatever, and you just try to put the storyline into chapters. What was the first chapter of your life like? What would you call the chapter? What happened in the chapter? How did you transition from that chapter to the next chapter? What was chapter two called? What happened in that chapter? So on, right? Make it into a narrative form. And then go back through the chapters of your own life and say, what was God doing or teaching or guiding me in any of these particular chapters? How was God authoring my life in any of the chapters? If you have time this week, this would be a really good exercise for you to do. Go back over your life, consider it a sort of spiritual history, and say, what was chapter one of my spiritual life like? What was chapter two like? What was chapter three like? What would I call those chapters? And what was God teaching me or how was God leading me in any one of those particular parts of my life. I can point to all kinds of episodes in my life where in the midst of the circumstances that I was in, I kind of felt like, I don't really get this. Anybody relate to that? I don't really know why you have me there. I've had moments in my life where I felt like I was supposed to move to another state. I moved there. I was there for six months, and I felt like God was telling me to go back. Like, what is going on here, you know? Why did I come here? Did I make a mistake? All of us have those kinds of stories in our lives. And then when you have the benefit of hindsight, you look back and you go, oh, God was using that. God was teaching me. That was definitely not part of what God wanted for me in my life, but God redeemed it. It's really helpful as we start this next year, if you spend a little bit of time looking back on your life and say, where have I seen God be faithful to me so that I can trust that God will be faithful in the next year? Let me invite Pastor Donna and the band to come forward as I, as I finish up. 
as we look forward to 2020, what story is going to shape our lives as we, uh, and our perspective as we live into this? And maybe it's helpful to think about what other stories threaten your ability to see your life through the lens of Scripture primarily. What other narratives that are bombarding us every single day want to be the dominant narrative for how you understand your life and how you understand reality? Are there political narratives that want to define who you are and what life is about? Are there self-help or personal happiness narratives that want to define your life to tell you that life is mostly about your contentment and your happiness and you should do whatever you can to pursue that? Are there career narratives, success narratives, family expectation narratives that want to define how you're going to live your life in 2020? If you can even just name them as narratives, you will release some of the power they have over your life and say, I'm not going to be primarily uh, a political uh, active uh, or agent this year. I'm not going to be a Democrat as my primary identity. I'm not going to be a Republican or an independent in an election year. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to be part of the story that God, and I will act politically, and I will act socially, and I will speak out on the things I feel led to speak out in, but first and foremost, as a Christian person, I won't allow the expectations of others to determine how I see the world and how I see what's happening. I will define them by the narrative of Scripture and the story that God is writing in my life. Here's my challenge for us. I want us to allow the Bible to be the primary story that shapes our perspective in 2020. Anybody in? Let's commit to reading the New Testament together as a spiritual practice to keep that story in front of us as we experience this next year. Get a reading plan that works for you. I know there are, there's some that don't work for others. Or get the Bible app and allow it to just read the Bible to you while you're driving, while you're commuting, while you're biking, whatever it is you're doing. Invite your kids or kids you know to read the Bible with you. They can totally do this, the ones that are old enough to read. Invite them to read the stories along with you. Let's not allow other narratives to dominate our thinking in 2020, okay? Let's live 2020 together, first and foremost, as followers of Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. There are so many things in life that are way beyond our control. But we know that you are the author of the story. And we affirm our trust in you, even when our circumstances are out of our control. And we pray that you would give us perspective, your perspective, on what's happening in the world, what's happening in our lives, what's happening in our relationships. God, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to act in ways that are in line with the love and grace and mercy and justice of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that the world would be different because of that. We love you and we thank you for what you've done for us, for who you are, and for what you invite us into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.